welcome to season three of Flash Forward. I know that I've been away for a little bit, but I'm really excited for this season. I have some really fun futures planned for you and some scary ones, but also fun ones. I promise it's a good mix this season. Before we get started, I have a couple of points of business. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons that advertisers love Flash Forward is that they know that the show has amazing listeners. And right now we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about you, the audience. So go to podsurvey.com slash flash. F-L-A-S-H, like flash forward like the show. Podsurvey.com slash flash. The survey only takes about five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you'd like to buy, but it's completely anonymous, so you don't have to give us your name. Your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and this show. And when you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. I know that I've done these listener surveys in the past, but if you've already filled one of these out, it would be really awesome if you could fill it out again because this is a different company that's handling it, um, and they have like different stats and need to answer different questions. So... The earlier ones were just for me to know about you, and this is actually like an official survey for business reasons. Um, so uh, if you can go podsurvey.com slash flash, that'd be great. You can win a $100 gift card, and uh, more importantly, to me at least, you will help the show be better and get the advertisers that um, are the best suited for you. Okay, great. Thanks for helping me find the best advertisers so that I can keep the show free for you. Okay, so more business to do before we get started. I promise I'll make this quick. Um... This is more about the show. So, um, I, hello, I'm Rose, and I got a job. I mean, I had a job before. I was a freelancer, and I was making the show and, and writing and doing all these other things, but I got a full-time job. So I am now working at ESPN, helping them launch this project. Uh, it's 30 for 30 Podcasts. Um, if you're not familiar with 30 for 30, it's this documentary film series that ESPN does. It's basically these long, incredible documentaries about sports. But this is all to say that the show, this show, will continue. I know some people have asked about it. This show will continue on. Here we are on this first episode, but instead of being every other week, it's going to be monthly, um, at least for a little while, while I try to figure out how to balance making this podcast and this other new full-time job that I have. Okay, that's all the business that I have. Um, uh, One other thing that I've found out that people don't know, because they skipped the outro, or maybe you're new to the show, there are hidden references in every episode, including this one, and if you find those references, you can send me an email at info at flashforwardpod.com, and you tell me about it, and I will send you Okay, on with the show, uh, which means I guess we should start with the like intro thing for those of you who are just starting and have no idea what the show is about. Ta-da! Welcome! Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. First, we go to the future to hear what that's like, and then we come back to now and talk about how it would really go down with a team of experts. Um, Some people ask me why I do this intro at the beginning of every episode, and that's because um, some people will come into an episode and they'll hear the future uh, audio drama, which is fiction, and then they will think that the rest of the show is also fiction, that I've gotten these experts, but they're actually actors. Um, That's not true. (laughs) Only the beginning is fiction, and then it's real. All the interviews and stuff are real. I promise. I would not fool you like that. Um... One last caveat about this episode is that it is going to include some frank discussion of sex and sex organs. I know that some of you listen with kids, so I just wanted to let you know. Okay, now we can actually get to the episode. Great. Let's start this season and episode in the year 2085.
body deserves to be pampered. But many birth control methods can wreak havoc both inside and out. So how do you stay responsible without being miserable? Try Ibono, a brand new non-hormonal birth control that works in a totally revolutionary way. No more cramps, blood clots, headaches, weight gain, mood changes, missed periods, decreased libido, none of it. Bobono, pamper yourself. Wade, and I am here with an important public service announcement. Now that you don't have to worry about pregnancy, you may think that sex is worry-free. But when it comes to sexually transmitted infections, sleeping with one person is like sleeping with many. Science is incredible, but you still need to protect yourself. Babies are not the only risk when it comes to sex. After every wild night comes that same lingering anxiety. Was she really on the pill? How can you be sure? For too long you've simply had to take her word for it. Now it's time to take things into your own hands, and with Infinex you can. Infinex is the first ever birth control for men, and thanks to recent changes in medical coverage, it's free for all men over the age of 13. You shouldn't leave something as important as having a baby in someone else's hands. Get Infinex today. Okay, so this is a future where everybody has access to 100% reliable birth control. You have asked for utopias on this show. You think that my show is too negative. I think this is about as close as we're going to come to a super positive future for a while. I mean, except later we're going to talk about the ways this can backfire, but not yet. Let's start with the good stuff. Actually, let's start by talking about the technology part of this, birth control. How does this work? What do we have? And what is the future of birth control? Generally speaking, um, the methods that folks use for birth control fall into one of two categories. I guess withdrawal would be the secret third category. That's Halen Bollet. It's not that hard. It's just if you have a friend named Lynn and you see her on the street and you're like, hey, Lynn. It's like, hey, Lynn. Very easy. <laughs> um, you can call me a writer and sex educator. So generally speaking, people prevent pregnancy using barrier methods, meaning condoms, whether those are um, external or internal condoms, um, the withdrawal method or the pullout method, um, the rhythm method, which is more about tracking the ovulation cycle, um, and then the hormonal methods such as uh, hormonal IUDs, uh, oral contraceptives, implants, and things like that. There are also surgical methods for both men and women, some of which are considered permanent and some of which are not. But those are more for people who know they just want to cut the whole process off long term, whether they never want to have kids or they want to stop having kids. Most 18-year-olds are not using vasectomies for birth control. So that's what we have now. And there are lots of ways that those methods of birth control are imperfect, right? Hormonal birth control comes with a ton of side effects for women, condoms can break, and the withdrawal method is not super effective. So what does the future of birth control look like? So for people with uteruses and eggs and fallopian tubes, there are a couple of things on the horizon, but most of them are improvements on the technology that we have now. So hormonal birth control with fewer side effects or implants that dissolve themselves instead of having to be removed from the body by a doctor like an IUD. But you'll notice that in the setup of this future, I said that everybody has access to birth control. 
not just people with uteruses and fallopian tubes and eggs, but people with sperm, too. Which brings us to male birth control. Okay, so if you've been following the science of birth control for a while, you probably just rolled your eyes a little bit, and I totally get it, because male birth control has been the next big thing for a long time now, and yet it never seems to actually happen. I don't, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but a lot of the things that I have heard about sound a little bit like, so there's the male birth control, right, which has been um, this beautiful fantasy for many years, and I feel it pops up in coverage every six to eight months, but I personally have not seen anything that looks even close to coming to market in a realistic way. Just recently, in the past few weeks, in fact, there has been this whole press cycle about the reasons why male hormonal birth control has not worked out so far. A study was published that found that hormonal birth control is effective in men, just like it is in women. But the researchers actually stopped the study early because the men were reporting side effects, like depression. Now, depression is a known side effect for female birth control, too. In fact, in another study that was recently published, the researchers found that 20 to 30 percent of women who take birth control experience depression. Now, it's kind of hard to tease apart correlation and causation here. So as far as I can tell, scientists don't really know how much of this is due to birth control pills themselves or other confounding factors. But they do seem convinced that birth control is a significant factor in developing depression. It's pretty clear that this is a side effect. It's just hard to say how significant it is. And it's not just this one study. You know, at the beginning of the development of hormonal birth control, there was a conversation about whether or not it should be developed for men or women or both. And it was developed in women because the researchers believed that men simply wouldn't accept the side effects that women would. And that's true, right? We've seen that play out this past week. Women are expected to accept the side effects of birth control and men are not. There was a study uh, a while back in human reproduction and asked people, asked men within the survey in a number of countries, would you use a new male contraceptive if it were, if it were available? And half of them said yes, three in a, uh, eight of them said maybe, and then one in eight said no. But what's interesting about that is when they asked that question, they framed it in terms of a, of a hormonal contraceptive. So had they asked that question in a way that was referring to non-hormonal, Uh, one would expect that the numbers would be even higher and even more men would say, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. That's Aaron Hamlin. He's the executive director of a nonprofit called the Male Contraception Initiative. And his nonprofit, this Male Contraception Initiative, they're actually focused on non-hormonal birth control for men, in part because it's easier to convince men, and therefore funders, to try methods that don't mess with hormones. You might just call us extra cautious. So let's talk about some of these non-hormonal methods that people are working on, because they might be the best chance that men have at birth control. Probably the most well-known version of this is something called vasal gel. The premise behind vasal gel is that it blocks a tube called the vas deferens. And the vas deferens is a tube that sperm need to get through in order to make it into ejaculate. So the idea here is that if you inject this little sort of gel and you block the sperm from ever getting out of the body, they can't possibly make their way to an egg. The process here is a one-time procedure that someone might have, and in theory, this lasts for a long time. It just blocks the sperm from ever escaping the body. And vasal gel is one of those male birth controls that is always on the horizon, but that never seems to actually get here. And Aaron says that that's in part because there are still some concerns with this method, specifically about how reversible it is. So that's another issue, because when you 
limit the space in which sperm can occupy, then you can create some pressure up against the epididymis, um, which can cause some long-term issues as far as production down the road. Another type of male birth control you might have heard of is something called an anti-epin drug. Epin is a protein that covers the surface of sperm, and an anti-epin drug basically messes up that covering and stops the sperm from being able to swim. But that drug isn't in clinical trials yet, so it'll take years to find out whether it will ever even come to market or not. Then there's something called the clean sheets pill. Um, so the, the clean sheets pill works by relaxing uh, um, the longitudinal muscles and the vas deferens. So uh, that, that tube where the sperm go through, that sperm has to get through there somehow or propelled somehow, and it's the muscles within that uh, vas deferens that allow that to happen. And so the clean sheets pill works by relaxing uh, those muscles. And so in, in effect, the, the, male, the man would experience an orgasm but wouldn't ejaculate. And they call that the clean sheets pill because it, it because without semen, it also cuts down the risk of STIs. Uh, they call it the clean sheets pill because uh, it's oh because you have an orgasm. <laughs> okay, so they're having fun with it. I see. I was like trying to think. I thought it meant like, oh, you have a clean bill of health. Uh, they're nope, taking it much they're, more literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. There are other forms of male birth control out there, like genetic techniques that target the genes that make sperm to begin with. But those are far more preliminary than the ones that we just talked about. And as much as male birth control has kind of become, I guess, almost like the contraceptive version of the where's my flying car joke about the future, Aaron still has faith. Any of these things can fail at any time. That's just the nature of pharmaceutical drug development. Uh, So there's been this rhetoric a lot with uh, well, when is the male, the next male contraceptive going to be here? And the answer is all 10 years away. And kind of the rationale for that answer is it from the kind of early stage of development for a male contraceptive to that endpoint, it, it's uh, hovering around 10 years or so. Right now, there are issues as far as funding with particular areas, and it looks like we may potentially be able to address those. And so... I think over the course of 20 years, uh, it would not be surprising at all to see at least one of these hit the market. So right now, there's a lot in between people and perfect birth control. But what if we did get to this future? What does that look like? When we come back, we're going to dig into that. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, so this episode so far has been about birth control. And often when we talk about birth control, we're really talking about preventing babies. But I want to talk about the flip side of that because birth control is really fundamentally about control, which I guess is obvious, but stick with me here. I think it's important to think about the flip side of being able to turn off the baby-making process, which is being able to turn it back on. And to talk about that, I called this guy. Hey, I thought the landline would be better, but it's not. <laughs> just uh, just an indication of how far out I am, actually. This uh, is Alexis Madrigal, uh, my former boss. And I am the editor-at-large at Fusion. And Alexis has this really interesting story about fertility that I'm just going to let him tell you. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of my story, uh, which is that, you know, in my family, basically everybody has gotten somebody pregnant or gotten pregnant early, <laughs> like accidentally. Uh, you know, my dad, my sister, um, other 
people in our immediate family. You know, like we're we're like a fertile group of people, uh, or so, or so I thought. That's foreshadowing. Um, and I, uh, you know, my wife Sarah Rich and I had gotten married actually here in the Colorado mountains where I'm sitting right now, and we were thinking. Um, all right, well, now it's time, you know, for the baby-making part of all this. Um, and, you know, we were kind of planners, and so we thought, like, well, you know, what we'll do is we'll just, like, make sure that um, the that each of us is, you know, has standard fertility. And, you know, that way we're not just, like, trying for a long time and then realize that, you know, whatever, one of us, there's some issue, you know. But I honestly, I thought there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I was just like, oh, absolutely, uh, you know, I'm just... I'm going to have so many sperm, they won't even know how to count them all, you know, <laughs> and they're going to swim they're like, you know, they're going to be like Michael Phelps, like right, right down, you know, to the eggs. So um, that was my thought at least. And so, you know, I kind of didn't really think about it for a while. And then, you know, a couple months went by and so I was like, you know, we should really get, you know, go do this like, um, you know, sperm test, you know, uh, just to, just to check things out, make sure everything's cool. You know, some of our friends had started to get pregnant around us. So I go into this place, um, you know, uh, it's like a fertility clinic that happened to be around the corner from us in Berkeley. And, um, you know, it's a really weird process. You go in and it's like, they have literally like a tiny room off the, uh, reception area where they have like stacks of pornography in like a little cup for you. And you're just like, really? Oh, this is weird. Like who's even seen a magazine of pornography, like since the 1990s, you know, like this is a bizarre situation you find yourself in and you hear people coming in being like, Hey, I'm just checking in for my appointment. And you're like behind this other side of the door, you know, it's, it's very weird. Um, so, you know, you sort of have to put semen in the cup, you put semen in the cup, you know, you, um, put it in a place you know you don't even have to bring it back outside which would be even weirder and then you just kind of like you know put your hand in your pocket and whistle out the door you know <laughs> like um and I totally forgot about it again you know uh for a few weeks and then you know the I, I didn't really have a primary care physician because you know because millennial I guess and so that I'd seen like a guy and I called him back and you know, it was like, hey, you know what happened to this test? And his office was like, oh, you know, he's on vacation in Florida for three weeks. And I was like, all right, well, can you just send me the test so I have it? And they're like, yeah, sure. So, you know, it's Friday. This is obviously before we had kids. So it's Friday afternoon after work and I'm taking a nap um, when my wife walks in to the bedroom and is like, hey, um, the, your sperm test came you know, and she just kind of like handed it to me and I don't have my glass on. I'm kind of like rubbing my eyes, kind of like with the paper really close to my face, looking at it. And I'm looking at the sort of first thing, which was just sort of like overall count of sperm. It wasn't, wasn't good, but it wasn't like the worst thing you'd ever seen. But then, you know, there's these other measures that people don't really think about, which are sort of like, well, how many of your sperm just aren't fucked up? You know, like look the way they're supposed to with a head and a tail uh, and a head and a tail that look right, you know, together in the same place. And in that one, it was really bad. That was a really bad number. Most of the sperm were, were not in good condition. Then there's sort of motility, you know, like how well do these things swim? And the number there was also really bad. Um, there were a couple of other ones that, you know, are sort of even less well-known indicators of male fertility, which were also terrible. So I'm kind of, you know, I kept like going down the line, waiting for like the big number that I could multiply by the other ones that would sort of make it all normal. And instead, 
uh, I got to the note at the bottom by the fertility doc, which basically said, like, if the results of this test uh, are indicative of this man's fertility, like, he's infertile. Just to, like, really drive this home, to Alexis, this is a really big shock. I mean, literally, my dad had a child at 19 years old unplanned. You know, this was kind of, I just sort of, had, you know, I had felt blessed to have gotten through my 20s without um, without having any children that at least that I knew about. You know, I mean, I just sort of felt like this was the curse of our family. But instead of accidentally getting somebody pregnant, his doctor is recommending a form of in vitro fertilization called ICSI. Uh, which I think is like intracytoplasmic sperm injection. I think that's what it's called. So being the science nerd that I am, I immediately like went to Google Scholar <laughs> and started um, Googling for ICSI and trying to figure out what this thing was. You know, IVF in the old days was basically you take the eggs, you put them in a you know Petri dish and you squirt sperm on them. You usually squirt semen on them, excuse me. And the sperm would go find their way uh, to those eggs and in a lot of cases, they uh, would fertilize them and, you know, on you go, develop the embryos for a little while and then, you know, Im- implant them uh, into, into a woman's uterus. Um, so that's kind of like the standard thing that existed uh, up until, you know, maybe 15 years ago. Basically, people started to say, well, what if we just like catch an individual sperm, like one sperm swimming around? And you were to take it and you were to like literally just push that thing into an egg. Like what would happen? Hey, guess what? It turns out that they fertilize the egg. What all of this means is that someone like Alexis, whose sperm might never find their way to an egg and successfully fertilize it, are able to become biological dads. So it's just I mean, in in the end, it's just sort of totally fascinating. Um, Both from the perspective of learning that male fertility was essentially already uh, fully under the control of science. So this might seem like totally unrelated to birth control and the future that we were talking about earlier, but I think it's actually totally the same conversation. Um, It's the other side of the coin, because another way to phrase this future, earlier we talked about it as a future in which everybody has access to 100% effective birth control. Another way to phrase this future is that everybody has 100% control over when they have a baby. So that's not just about not having babies. It's also about the technology that allows you to have babies if you want to. And I guess probably in theory, having the exact babies you want to have when you want to have them. The other crazy thing that I kept thinking about was it meant that like an individual technician sitting somewhere in a lab um, is like technically the one pulling the sperm and saying like, well, this is the one. Like this, this looks like, you know, little little Jane. This, you know, this looks like Jose right here. You know, like that was crazy to me to just like think about that person's life, uh, day in day out, like picking the good ones. You know, like. Now, for Alexis, there's a little bit of a twist in the story. The coda to all this um, is that when we received that test. Um, it actually turned out that Sarah, my wife, was already pregnant with our first son, Octavio, and we now have two kids. Um, I actually got retested before our second child um, and had borderline uh, fertility. It was sort of like on the low end. 
Um, but it was within the fertile range and, you know, it took us all of, you know, six weeks for Sarah to get pregnant. So it's kind of like, you know, it, honestly, what do all of these numbers mean? Like, I have no idea, you know. Which I think really captures the farce that is trying to control and manipulate every single thing about fertility. It turns out that that is really hard because humans are designed, like most animals, to reproduce. Uh, it's really hard to get in the way of that process. Okay, so what does this all mean? Where does this future lead us? This utopia is, on on some trend line, it actually is a, a place where we're going. But I think that that trend line really is more about um, the extension of parenthood um, to a greater and greater uh, number of people or control over parenthood to a greater, greater number of people. So we have this future where everyone has control, and and that's good, right? That's good for a lot of people. Um, But one of the questions that I have is sort of how this future might impact culture. What does having access to birth control actually do to a culture or society? Well, we have a case study to look at, right? In the 1960s, the pill became available to women in the United States. So suddenly, women were able to control their own bodies completely outside the act of sex, which was huge. Feminist saw it as a um, as a as a great um, uh, a great opportunity for women to improve their quality of lives to make a lot of choices and opportunities available to them that weren't before because there was no reliable birth control this is Elaine Tyler May I teach at the University of Minnesota and I'm the author of America and the pill a history of promise and liberation. I called her because I wanted to know what happens to our cultural conversations about pregnancy and babies when everybody has control over their own fertility. How do you feel like, uh, you know, accessible, like where everybody has access to this thing? Like, how does that change our culture or the conversations? Or like, what does that future look like? It doesn't change anything. <laughs> I don't think it changes anything. You know, uh, I mean, I think people will be happy to have something available and accessible and inexpensive and no side effects and, you know, the perfect contraception for men and women. Uh, I think everybody will like that. It won't change anything. (laughs) This is why I love calling historians. But Elaine makes a good point. The only thing that will change anything substantially um, is political work and political activism. You know, because institutions don't change the way people live. Their lives won't change unless there's uh, political work that open up new ways of living and new, you know, institutional changes. And I think it would be like a repeat of 1960. You know, the pill wouldn't have done anything by itself. A lot of people say that the pill is what launched the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s. But Elaine says that it's actually the opposite. The pill did not launch the women's movement. The women's movement launched the pill. You know, we're talking about the early 1960s. If there was no women's movement, there would really be nothing revolutionary about the pill. It would simply be a more efficient, more reliable, more... um, uh, manageable kind of uh, contraception, and it wouldn't have changed the way people actually live because what the pill actually did was make, make it possible for women to take advantage of new opportunities 
for work, for public life, for um, for their own creative goals. And if there hadn't been those opportunities, the, the pill wouldn't have made any difference. So it really was the feminist movement that opened those doors, and it was the pill that allowed women, in a sense, to go through those doors. Even if we had completely perfect birth control with no side effects, it would be totally meaningless if people don't have access to it, which might be an even harder problem than getting men to accept the risk of hormonal birth control. That goes back to the sort of original issue, which is that we're really uncomfortable as a society talking about sex um, or even talking about the parts of the body that have to do with sex. That's Halen again. And for a long time, I mean, it wasn't until not recently to me, because it was before I was alive, but recently in our national history that even these low-tech forms of birth control were A, made widely available, and B, made acceptable to speak about in public. So I think that is a huge part of why it feels like we're so behind in tackling these problems that are ancient problems, problems we've been having forever. Um, I think, hopefully... This period of time is a tidal change where, you know, there are more women in tech. There is a generally more accepting attitude of contraceptive use, although that's not a universal thing. Um, So hopefully that's something that will be changing in the future. But I, I personally am not super optimistic that it'll be anytime super soon. And it's also worth noting that just because everybody has access to something, it doesn't mean that they're all going to use it. First, they have to know how to use it, which is an issue even now when it comes to things like condoms. So I grew up in an abstinence-only state, so we didn't learn anything in school about how to properly use a condom. And beyond that, not everybody wants to use birth control. I think that for many birth control lovers, that's kind of hard to imagine, but everybody has their own life that they're living and should obviously be allowed to continue that. Many of the current birth control options available are either unpalatable or unacceptable to people for a variety of options. Um, There are many people who just don't do well on hormonal birth control. Um, There's also people who have a moral or ethical opposition to using hormonal birth control. Even though it is uh, very effective, it can be incompatible with people's bodies or with their lifestyles. This is all to say that having a technology doesn't really change much. You need a culture to go along with it. But there are a few things that we can probably say about what might happen in this future with 100% effective and accessible 100% effective and accessible birth control. First, less babies, which yes, duh. Okay, that's like the whole point, but that's still worth pointing out. The really awesome thing about a future with perfect contraception is that people who don't want to have children won't have to have children. Um, My mom got pregnant at a time that was very inconvenient for her to get pregnant. And she chose to carry the pregnancy to term and raise the child. That was me. Um, But what that meant for her life was it made going to college and getting an education really difficult. It made um, getting a job really difficult. It made pretty much everything about her life very, very difficult. Now, that was an amount of difficulty that she was willing to take on, and I respect the hell out of her for it, but she was always very clear with me growing up that she did not want me to have to make the same decision that she made between um, starting a family at an age where she was not expecting to start a family. She was 19 years old, 
versus, you know, doing the things that I think a lot of our parents want for us, going and getting an education, making a life for ourselves, um, having some independence before we start a family. This also eliminates an entire path to parenthood. I know plenty of women who were kind of on the fence about having a baby and then they got pregnant and decided that, yeah, they, they did want to have a baby. I was one of those babies. In this future, I might never have been born. And this podcast would never exist. And that would probably be fine, honestly, but still. And Halen had a couple of concerns about this future, too. It's not all rosy. You didn't think I was going to let you out of here with a perfect utopia. Now to be a bit of a pessimist, I think there is a chance that perfect contraception would mean uh, a noticeable increase in STI transmission. And the reason I say that is because I know a lot of people, I've had a lot of conversations with people who say something along, like they tell me a story along the lines of, um, oh, I met this girl at a club and I went home with her and she didn't have any condoms, but she was on the pill, so it was okay. So we just had unprotected sex. Um, So for a lot of people... Um, pregnancy prevention is the major reason to use barrier methods during sex with people that they don't know or that they don't know very well or that they're not monogamous with. Um, but if pregnancy prevention is no longer a concern, I don't think it's unrealistic to say that there are a lot of people who might make a sort of skewed risk assessment and say, well, if there's no risk of getting this person pregnant or of me getting pregnant from this person, then you know we don't need to use barrier methods. We don't need to use any other form of um, protection or, or methods of having safe sex. And uh, I think that that could lead to an increase in unprotected sex between folks who don't know the other's STI status, and that might lead to an increase in STI transmission. We also talked about how having totally effective birth control might change the way that people talk about abortion. Right now, it feels like some people are, I guess, like begrudgingly accepting of abortion because, you know, good people make mistakes. Even if you're on hormonal birth control or using condoms 100% of the time, you can still get pregnant by random chance or by mistake. Um, but if we're living in a world where these forms of birth control are really 100% effective, it feels to me like that could change the tenor of the conversation about abortion. Now, Elaine does not agree with me. No. No, again, I think abortion is an issue that has to be handled with um, political work. Perfect contraception is not going to change that. But you don't think that, like, perfect contraception gives fuel to those who kind of are already looking for an excuse to say that they don't want, pe- like, abortion to happen? You know what I mean? Like, if, if they people... don't need the excuse now, <laughs> they won't need an excuse then. You know, we already have reliable contraception. That's really not what this issue is about. But where Halen isn't so optimistic about change, Elaine is. Oh, I'm an optimist, you know. I'd like to get there the day after Hillary Clinton is elected. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, listeners. I'm even leaving you on a positive note, a bona fide utopia, sort of. This is about as close as we're ever going to get on the show, so revel in it while you still can. Let's just say that the next episode is a lot darker. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is new. It's by Hussalonia. Do you remember Hussalonia from last season? He wrote this music. It's great. I love it. It's been stuck in my head for months now. The commercial voice from the intro was Brent Rose, and the episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. 
If you want to suggest a future that we should take on this season, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. I think they're really fun, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email us there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. If you would like to become a sponsor of Flash Forward, that would be awesome. You can email me at info at flashforwardpod.com for more information. And if you are just like an individual human being that wants to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that too. You can go to flashforwardpod.com slash support and you can get all the information about Patreon or one-time donations or just being nice and leaving us an iTunes review, all of those things that help. That's all for this future. Come back next month and we'll travel to a new one.